With unconvicted people on pre-trial detention making up nearly 70% of the overcrowded prison population, what is the situation in India's prisons, a country of more than 1.3 billion people? Today we're going to be hearing about the realities of India's prisons and how the system can try to cope with these unprecedented pressures. My name is Omar Phoenix Khan and this is Justice Focus. Madhuri Madanaka is a human rights lawyer and coordinates the prison reforms team at the Commonwealth Human Rights Initiative, which seeks to reduce unnecessary and prolonged detention of prisoners in India. She has a master's degree focused on criminal justice from the University of Nottingham and specialises in prison law, human rights, immigration detention, mental health law and access to justice. Madhurima, welcome to Justice Focus. Hi Omar, how are you? It's great to be here. I'm well, thanks. And it's, it's great to speak to you. Now, of course, we want to talk about how COVID-19 is affecting the justice system in India. But first, could you explain a bit about what the Indian prison system is like in terms of conditions inside the prisons, access to basic necessities, staffing and any of the areas of concern that there are for your organisation and the reform you work on? And obviously, India is a huge country that has very different states, which have very different systems. But it'd be great to have a brief overview of the context first. Yeah, sure. Uh, so you uh, you say it quite quite correctly. So India is a, a big country, and uh, prisons is a state subject, which uh, under the constitution, which essentially means that every state has uh, supremacy over the rules or the provisions that apply inside a prison. But mm-hmm. the center cannot dictate any of the states to follow suit on any of the policies or any of the mm. uh, you know provisions that they would like to. I think every state you go to, there'll be something different in every prison. And even within a state, because there are multiple categories of prisons. So you have, mm-hmm. you know, you have your smaller sub jails and then you have your district jails and then you have central jails. And jails would differ depending on where they are situated, what's the infrastructure like. Like we still have jails which were actually constructed in the British era and they still continue to be. Mm-hmm. And we have... Uh, and it's i think it's what i've realized in my experience is that it's also it's also very administrator centric so it depends mm-hmm. on who's the chief of the prison department and that really affects the way the prisons are run so if your chief is somebody who is pro rights who's pro prisoner pro rehabilitation then you can see you know the kind of efforts and energy and everything that's put in mm-hmm. but uh, one of the other things is it's usually police officers who get assigned as chief of prisons. Right, I see. And, you know, it's difficult. And there, there are some writings by some of the, you know, prison chiefs which say that initially it's so difficult because it's such a change in, in change in the role, you know. Mm. At, at one point, you're a police officer where your whole purpose is to identify, detect, and arrest. And then you you just forget what happens to people when they go inside a prison. Yeah. And then you suddenly come here and, you know, it's it's a little difficult to get into that, you know, even understand the entire purpose of imprisonment in itself. Mm. Yes, they get a a more holistic kind of view of the whole system. But would you say that there's a hierarchy in people's minds that work within justice system saying they would prefer to work for one agency rather than another? Well, you could say that. You could say that, that, you know, usually 
you know there there are differences in even in terms of pay there's no pay parity mm. between the prison prison officers and other uh, streams of work like even mm. they, it's there's no pay parity even with police officers also in most states the uh, prison officers are paid way poorly than the prison yeah. officers are even the rankings are not the same even you might have the same rank but then your your pay scales are really different and even your promotions there there is a lot of issue in terms of the prison mm-hmm. administration side of it as well but going back mm-hmm. to your earlier question on on the prison conditions so as i mm-hmm. said you know it depends on where the prison is um so some and who is running the prison so some of the prisons uh, which are made pretty newly uh, constructed they don't have a lot of you know cleanliness or hygiene issues mm-hmm. but overall yes uh, you know healthcare is inadequate and uh, overcrowding is of course rampant the national uh, occupancy rates are around 118% i think yeah and i know that one of the big drivers for that big yeah. population is the high number of under trials or people in pre trial detention as you mentioned up up yeah. at almost yeah. almost 70% um are people that in pre trial detention are they kept separately to people who have been convicted and are there's there any difference in conditions So usually they're in the same prison but there's a, they mm. they have different barracks different areas but mm. that's also in the mostly newly constructed prisons that distinction is there um mm. in some of the ones which are still old you know at the end of the day you might be sleeping in different places but in the day you're free, you're you're basically next to each, each other and thinking about those people who are on pretrial detention or under trials what is the situation with access to legal aid for people in yeah. that situation i know that you and chri do some work specifically on this yeah uh, we've you know we have an entire body of work which which now looks at you know strengthening pretrial decision making india until very recently did not have any provisions for legal aid at police stations mm. and it's only last year after i think we've been working on this for more than a decade now um you know we we we've been pushing uh, you know at the suspects stage you need to have legal aid mm. access to legal aid lawyers um and now uh, we have uh, there are state mandated prison legal aid clinics that are supposed to be there every prison across the country and those mm. clinics are supposed to have uh, a lawyer and a paralegal assigned to those clinics and they've yeah. been working quite well in most of the places we've visited and uh, we've done quite a number of studies in in quite a few states by now and do you find that there are really large differences between those states so that you have to work with them in different ways yeah there are there are uh, you know every state's been a different challenge to begin mm. with for instance there are certain states which where you know drugs are a huge challenge inside prisons um there are states where corruption or the general uh, apathy between you know the the power play between prison officers and prisoners are, are really high or there are states where um you know there are states where the prison officers seem to be a lot more interested and vested into the work they do and the mm-hmm. welfare of the prisoners so yeah every pres- i think every every state has posed a different uh you know story or a narrative altogether and just generally in terms of population trends yeah. could you talk a little bit about different kinds of populations different demographics and what direction india is going in so the population structures uh you know differ again across states um mm. but uh, what we do have in india is luckily is that you know ever since 1995 there is a we have detailed data and statistics available on prisons mm. so that's uh, quite informative in terms of you know defining your research or nuancing uh, you know mm. your focus areas etc so the demographies yes of course majority of the prisoners are illiterate 
and uh, yeah a lot of those prisoners are in pretrial detention for a long time and they belong to different uh, groups of people but mm. yeah it, it's but it's a mix across states like different states would give different data yeah. and i know that the the female prison population is sort of slightly lower than average in and it's under 5%. I think most countries are between sort of 5 and 9% of their prison populations are women. Yeah. But it has also been growing, I believe. Yeah, it's been growing. I think the jump has been far higher than in any mm. other prison population area. But yeah, still the prison, uh, the women prison population seems to be quite low. One of the reasons could probably be that uh, bail provisions are a little bit more liberal for women mm-hmm. prisoners. So yeah. that could be the reason, yeah. Okay, so now we're moving on to think specifically about the Indian response to COVID-19. And I know that CHRI has produced a document called COVID-19 and Prisons in the Commonwealth, Ensuring an Effective Response. But I wonder if you could just let us know a little bit about how you're feeling about the response in India generally. I have a lot of concerns about the response in India and in other places as well. So India's response uh, in terms of the prison system has been twofold. So one is about the precautions in prisons and the other has been about the releases. And the Supreme Court of India highlighted and affirmed that there is a, there is a grave danger given the overcrowding that, mm. you know, if, if the virus was to reach a prison, it is, of course, going to be you know, it can just become an epicenter pretty soon because, um, you know, of the conditions. And also one thing about India is, like, the prisoners don't stay in cells. They stay in barracks or wards. Yeah. So you have far more people in, in, like, you know, you're not... In a cell, you still have people who are probably, you know, just limited to the cell. But here, there are usually 20 to 30 people and in some cases, 100 to 100 people in one cell. Yeah. And could you describe those cells a little more so that the listener can have a picture of what it's like yeah so uh, you know just going back to so when i said that the occupancy rate is 100 uh, 118 percent mm-hmm. so that's only the average but there are prisons in india which have more than 200 percent occupancy mm-hmm. rate um so there you know the barracks that are probably meant for 20 people are keeping 40 so mm-hmm. that means you're literally you there are literally places where you don't even have space to maybe you know turn your back if you're sleeping at night right so people are sleeping on the floor yeah, yeah, people yeah. are sleeping on the floor. There's nothing yeah. called beds in most of the prisons mm-hmm. across the country. It's, beds are usually only in the medical wards. Right. So you get a you know, very thin thin blanket or something to sleep on. Or in some some of the newer prisons, they've made, uh, you know, cement beds. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can you get to sleep on there. But yeah, in most of the places, it, they, there are no beds. And in terms of sanitation? Well, in terms of sanitation, you have one, you know, one bathroom that's yeah. your night bathroom that's inside inside the wards yeah. and then you have a common bathing area that's mm. outside yeah. so you know there's there's no socializing there's no way that one can you know do yeah. social distancing in a prison no definitely and it sounds very similar actually to many other countries where the british colonization created horrible rectangular buildings with cold floors where people are expected to just sleep packed in all tightly together with a bucket system in the corner yeah, absolutely and so uh, the court had taken cognizance and they have been pushing for the releases. Uh, the court formed these high-powered committees for every state to uh, come up with their own criteria on what kind of prisoners, both unsentenced and sentenced prisoners, that could be released. Mm-hmm. 
So in most states, um, you know, they have made releases. Some of the states have refused to make any releases saying there is no overcrowding. Mm. So we don't need to release. Um, though, as I said, you know, it's not that average overcrowding might be 0%, but, you know, you might have overcrowded, you might have crowded particular prisons. And, you know, some places they are like 200, 300, 400, like in some instances. Yeah. That's a worry. Um, but they have been resorting to interstate in interprison transfers. And so the newspapers are full of news about what the different states are doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we've been doing is, as you said, we've prepared the document, um, you know, which sets out very practical guidance on what the what precautions could be. Mm-hmm. We've, uh, you know, we, we took note of a lot of uh, the reason we prepared our own guidance was because most of the documents that we came across seem to be only, um, you know, referring to the law or referring to the legal provisions or international standards, um, you know, what should be. But we thought it was necessary to provide some practical guidance, you know, based on our experience on every step Mm. of the the prison process, you know, at admission during your search procedures, uh, what kind of amenities are supposed to be. For for instance, a lot of prisons don't even give soap free of cost. Mm-hmm. You have to buy the soap off the canteen. Mm. So, you know, there were very basic practical things that we yeah. thought uh, were necessary to provide. And we, we put th- those down in the document that we made. Mm-hmm. And we also put down on, on the releases, uh, you know, what are the possible categories. Because there's in India, there's already, uh, since 2015, there's an interesting mechanism called the Anti-Trial Review Committees okay. that are in place which are supposed to be, these are district level bodies that have to review cases of under trials um, every quarter, mm-hmm. which are now directed by the Supreme Court to now meet every week and review cases and see whoever's eligible for bail, um, you know, they have to be uh, considered and the applications, etc. filed to the legal aid clinic, mm-hmm. etc. So that's, um, so, so now what we're doing is we've made the guidance and we, when the high power committees were formed, we prepared a note for them Particularly because uh, as soon as the Supreme Court order came, the very next day, the, the country went into a national lockdown, which meant that the public transport services, the interstate transport, everything got closed. Yeah. So we were really worried that, you know, if prisoners get released now, where would they go? Mm. And it so happened that a lot of prisoners ended up stranded because the authorities never made or, you know, didn't uh, take into account this this issue that, you know, where would these people go yeah. if they don't have transport and they can't get people to come and uh, meet them. On the contrary, so, so our guidance uh, to the committees and to those who are members of the committees was that, you know, you can, you can arrange for escorts for them to go back, arrange for vehicles or escorts or, you know, you make your own, whatever arrangements you want to make through the district administration, make those arrangements before you leave people. Mm-hmm. And another thing we wanted to highlight was the consent of prisoners that, you know, you can't just release a prisoner, you know, tell him, oh, yeah, now you go and fend for yourself because, you know, there's a risk. You know, the prisoner might not even have, have a place to go to. Yeah. The prisoner might not have anything to go with. And what about the sustenance of the person? You can't just leave somebody out because they're obviously unemployed. They've been in prison for a considerable time. They mm-hmm. are unemployed. So it's, it's you know, we need to... So taking that into account as well. Yeah. So our, one of our guidance documents talked about both these issues about safe transit of prisoners and then also about sustenance for the prisoner, the consent of the prisoner. And uh, we also talked about, you know, when you're sending them out, what kind of precautions you need to take, you know, don't send them out if they have a 
that they have any of the symptoms or at least test them before you send them out because you don't want them to become carriers mm. you know you they're in prison now they go to their community and they spread it further that what's the entire point yeah. yeah during admission a lot of prisons are isolating for 14 days mm. they've uh, named temporary places as prisons and they're keeping them there they're also testing before they're releasing people mm. we are of course tracking all of this and we've we've also very recently put out a page on our website which is tracking the number of releases so mm-hmm. what's happened is the committees have come out and said we're going to release x number of prisoners yeah but then for unsentenced prisoners uh, no court is empowered to release uh, apart from the actual court where the case is going on yeah, yeah. um so in that so so that means the people who haven't been found guilty of anything actually it's more difficult to release them than the people who have been found guilty of something yes yes absolutely but uh, at the same time you know for an unsentenced prisoner hmm. it's usually the court where the case is going on which is the competent court to order for his release so a bail application would have to be filed for in each court yeah so that makes the process a little lengthy and then because courts are also not functional in most of the states mm. they're all all on lockdown they're only hearing urgent matters that through video conferencing that's also not very well um, you know that's not really working very well either mm. so there are guidelines going around so there's a lot of you know last minute uh, things that are flying around all the time but yeah. of course it leads to a lot of chaos and it also leads to a lot of rights being trampled upon mm-hmm. um with no remedies whatsoever yeah so so yeah that's uh, yeah so we've been tracking uh, you know the number of releases versus the number of promised releases and uh, of the number of actual releases is a little lesser and we're also trying to see whether you know if if you have a you know if you have overcrowding for 140% or so you have an occupancy rate of 140% and you release maybe 5% prisoners it's not going to make any difference yeah So our emphasis has been most on you know mostly on the precautions that you're trying to take inside the prison yeah uh, you know that being more important than doing you know just trying to you know just go with the flow and say oh yeah we've released prisoners yeah but you know that releasing of prisoners isn't really helping anyone right and especially the even if you release prisoners you're not releasing all your prisoners yeah so what about the prisoners who are still there you know you need to be sure that they those precautions are there because yeah. they are still at risk even if it's one person which of course it's not it's far many they are still at risk of course and the staff as well yeah the staff as well and the staff are coming in and going out and uh, you know your banning of uh, you know family mulaqats and everything they've led to riots like one of the city i stay in it was a really bad prison incident that happened here and it it if they said like there were a number of there are a lot of rumors on how it started but then one of the reasons is that because family visitation had stopped mm. and uh, which is why you know one of the one of the other things we've emphasized a lot on is awareness mm. you know at least ensure that prisoners are aware of what's happening yeah after all you know they are also concerned about their families and they literally know nothing you know even we on the outside we don't get to know everything even if we keep on reading the news or looking for news on google or other places but somebody who's inside prison he has absolutely no way of knowing what's happening outside and you suddenly go one day and say oh, yeah no you can't meet your lawyers you can't meet your friends you can't meet your family then what is going to happen yeah of course it's trouble waiting to happen you know and i understand you're doing some work with some oversight bodies so that we can understand exactly what those conditions are like and what's happening in reality in the prisons yeah in a sense um 
so one of the things we're trying to do uh, right now in addition to the guidance document etc is to ensure that in this time um the monitoring bodies work mm. uh, and there is proper uh, precaution there there's a proper oversight that the precautionary measures are actually in place mm. they shouldn't just be on paper and not actually be translating on the ground and that can only happen if if the oversight bodies are functioning and you know, the moment you detect someone has has even symptoms they need to be immediately responded to yeah and what do you say to those people who maybe don't concentrate so much on the causes of reoffending or rehabilitation or the conditions in prisons and they say well letting these people out even if they are non-violent offenders we're not following the law or we're not upholding the law well i clearly say that the decision to send them out was based on a procedure that's been established by law mm. so honestly i don't think any person would get very far by giving an argument saying that you know releasing them is against the law mm. there is a concern of course there are concerns about victim rights uh, right yeah. now which i have also been considering and i've aired my thoughts um on this but yeah there 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 needs to be a way to balance it out and i think the courts need to be aware uh, of the need and the involvement of the you know the victim mm-hmm. in the decision making is also important and i think that should be done uh, by the court before you grant any relief yeah no i i ask because there's always people that say oh well we're letting criminals get away with things and even if the law sanctions them out somehow now it's going to cause more crime So I just wondered what your response was to those kind of things. Well, see, the situation we are in, there's definitely going to be a lot more crime. Mm. A lot more economic crime is going to happen because you know the lockdowns are going to leave people in mm. very difficult positions. It's already difficult for people and especially for in India you can see how it's affecting daily uh, you know daily labor and migrants and mm. so yeah there are already news about you know people going out and uh, you know resorting to a life of crime because you know how else do they earn their livelihood hmm. so yeah those are bigger questions for the for the criminal justice system to think that yeah. okay if you are if you're worried about people going out and uh, you know reoffending then you need to see what you were doing with them when they were in prison mm-hmm. weren't you supposed to be spending money or time in rehabilitation programs and you know very few people are criminals by choice mm-hmm. it's usually out of some hardship or it's usually based on something yes. you know, there's always a story behind a criminal yeah you know if this one thing that we learn from the cores of narratives that exist about criminals i think one of the things is that there's always a story and just one last question related to um the the people who are potentially going to be released from prison. I know you've you've spoken a little bit about your concerns of how some people are are released without much of a plan and so that might cause more problems and so you're obviously advocating for a very thoughtful process about how to release prisoners. And I've seen some discussions around the idea that prisoners that are serving sentences up to 7 years might be eligible. And so what do you and CHR I think about the parameters about who should be considered as eligible for release? Well, I think everyone should be considered for release. Mm. Um, you know, and it's for the court to take the decision on who is and who isn't. I don't think so a, cri- a criteria based on, you know, 7 years or 8 years or 10 mm. years uh, makes as much sense as does 
uh, maybe what the presiding officer of the court can see in terms of the evidence that mm. is there against a person. Some people make the division between violent and non-violent crimes, things like that. Yeah, but even in a, even if it's a violent crime, at the end of the day, an unsentenced prisoner is innocently proven guilty. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, any person, it doesn't it doesn't matter. You you shouldn't include people from consideration for release just because they're charged with uh, an offense uh, of say murder. Because even people who are charged with offenses of murder are released on bail when the evidence is not as substantive. Hmm. So, given that thought, then I think everybody should be considered. Hmm. Uh, everyone's case, uh, you know, there are cases in India which, wherein you know the the case the case the trial hasn't progressed for like years. Okay, it's been maybe say five years or six years or seven years, and your trial hasn't gone beyond maybe the first, uh, you know, the first witness or the second witness. Hmm. So in such situations, you know, you might as well just release the person. Like, what's the point? Yeah. So I think. You know, the consideration should be for everyone mm-hmm. and not any particular category. And yeah, it's on the presiding officer to decide based on the progress of the case and, you know, the likelihood of the person, uh, you know, having committed. You know, just make a prime officer examination of the evidence and take your call. Yeah. I think that would be a better, better thing to do, just, not just now, but yeah. always. In terms of collaboration, I know that you work um, across many different countries and work with many different people. And so I'm wondering, are there any areas that you wish that academics worked on more, any specific areas of research that you think would help your cause more or any other kind of stakeholder that you work with? I think not in terms of research, but I think Mm -hmm. in terms of networking and convening. Mm -hmm. I don't think so. The prison groups, you know, meet as much as they should and those who do are mostly working on, you know, multiple countries, but they're not really the grassroots workers who mm. actually have a lot of, a lot more experience of the ground. Mm. And I think that's something that restricts a lot of experience or a lot of knowledge from mm. reaching, um, you know, far and wide, which would actually be more useful. There's a lot of knowledge. There's a lot of standard, standard setting on the broader aspect. Mm there are still areas that you sometimes work on and you, when you try to look on the net, you you get to nothing. And then you feel, okay, how is it that this hasn't been, you know, talked mm. about or discussed, but then you realize that it is, but then it's lying in some country, in some, you know, place where it's not open to Google. Or only specific languages. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And did you also have in mind people with lived experience of working directly in the prisons or even being prisoners themselves and reflecting back exactly, on the system. Exactly, absolutely. Yeah. In, in our organization, we've always had this thought about, you know, how do you involve prisoners mm. more in the work you do? Because, mm. you know, they, they know the specifics better. They know the, you know, they know the fine prints, which none of us do know. Yeah. The Twitter is full of people talking about how the isolation seems like a prison. Yeah. But honestly, ask a prisoner and isolation with yeah. internet and all other facilities is nothing close to a prison. And so in your work, in, you know, in your particular role, what does impact mean for you? Honestly, it's very difficult when you work on policy. Yeah. Because, you know, it's, it's difficult to gather. We're a little bit um, lucky on the sense that we, we also have a bit of work which is, you know, which is direct response. Mm. That's linked to our, uh, you know, our work on foreign national prisoners. Yeah. 
other than that you know we've worked a lot on documentation and uh, you know when you see your formats being used by the authorities mm. then it gives you a sense of you know accomplishment that yeah. okay you've managed to streamline something yeah. and, uh, to give you an example we 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 conducted a study in one of the states here in india and after the study we've engaged very closely with the prison department and the legal services authority to prepare an action plan mm. um, an action plan was basically we took up all the recommendations we had in the report and we got them both together sitting and deciding you know what is how will you address it mm. when will you address it by and i'm happy that i think in less than a year a lot of things actually there have changed Oh yeah. Such as installing washing machines inside prisons, or mm. having your awareness displays, you know, posters of camps in prison. The only issue is, I think, anything to do with prisons is the fact of sustainability. So you know, a change might be there for a year or two mm. years, but how do you ensure it's there always? Yeah. Okay, great. Thanks for that. And there's a question that I like to end on, and that's. Hypothetically, if you had a room that you could fill with whoever you wanted and you could speak to them for half an hour about whatever you wanted, who would you put in that room for the greatest impact and what would you be saying to them? Uh, okay, I think uh, I'd probably be very focused and have a room full of a mix of people, mm-hmm. including prisoners, prison officers, legal service authorities, which all belong to one district or two districts. Yeah. So that, you know... Yeah, as in, I would want to convene everyone together and then talk to them all together. Yeah, rather than trying to do too much, mm-hmm. you know, direct advocacy works. Uh, yeah, when it's it's smaller groups and they're all connected groups. Mm-hmm. And yeah, would like to listen to them on what's their problem, and then yeah, from my experience, want to put out what we have and what we said and what what we feel can make a difference. And yeah, help them through the course and implement it. It can't be a one off. one off session where we where only we talk it's a session where everyone gets to talk and everyone needs to come together to come to a decision on what to change yeah and how to change it i really like your answer not saying that you would do all the talking and that you'd include people to give their points of view as well that's a, that's a, a nice way of thinking about it um well i hope you hope you can run some of those sessions with the CHRI i think that sounds like a really good initiative yeah well let's hope we get out of the lockdown to be able to yeah. do it <laughs> So in the meantime if people would like to get involved somehow or get in touch with you or CHRI what's the best way for them to contact and follow your work Um I think Twitter is a good uh, place mm-hmm. to be our Twitter handle is chri_int mm-hmm. we also have an Instagram page we have a Facebook page so you can follow us anywhere and so yeah we are pretty much accessible Brilliant Thanks so much for being on the show Madurima All right thank you so much for having me here Okay thanks for listening Please do me a favor and share this podcast with anyone who you think might be interested in some criminal justice content Also hit subscribe for free and you'll never miss an episode You can also follow the show on Twitter at justice_focus and me at omarpcard Speak to you next time Cheers.